This is DevOps and Agile Way Podcast. Okay, hello everybody. We still have Luca with us and we will discuss this time something else. Last time we discussed community approach to public talks, how to how important it is, how important it is to build the build yourself into some community, some space where you can learn, where you can also share the knowledge. But today we'll talk about something maybe more interesting for some people. Different, let's say this way, different. So you have a lot of experience related to microservices, related to these things which are very, very, very popular right now and uh, sometimes even misunderstood. I can have this bold statement. Um, Last time we even discussed the aspect of the communications in the team. This Conway's law is very important, especially when we start decoupling the, the application and many failures in the companies came not from technical aspects, but from this like a soft aspect, like communications, etc., etc., etc. What is Convey Law? I will come back to this in some episode. You wrote great books about microservices, about micro frontends. Uh, we will go to micro frontends in a couple of minutes, but I would like to ask you from your perspective as a experienced person, engineer, architect, where we are in this microservices world, right? We started to apply microservices some time ago, and I'm sure that if you are long enough in the industry, you remember this hype on Docker, so everyone wanted to Dockerize everything and then just realize that, oh, it doesn't work that way. And they came back to monolith and virtual machines, right? So so we have this kind of uh, hiccup. I saw this hiccup with serverless as well probably will be another hiccup because right now serverless is still on the going up uh, with the adoption. So in your eyes, as you are experienced, you talk with many customers where we are in the microservices world. That's a a very good question. I would say that uh, there are more and more uh, people and, uh, and companies that are trying to apply microservices or a distributed system, as I prefer to call them, because there are different ways. Microservices is one of the ways that you can build distributed systems. And they are trying to apply uh, with the idea that they want to solve some, some technical problems. And very often, especially teams that are new to the distributed system world, they discard, I cannot say almost completely, but not too far from there, the other dimensions the architecture and architecture is bringing into the table. Very often, you know, when you say, I remember back in the days, there was this uh, uh, idea that, oh, yes, let's embrace microservices so everyone can use whatever languages they want. And that large organization, that they did that. And when it was my turn to, to design my first uh, uh, thing, the first thing that I did is said, okay, we have two languages, one high level, one low level, and that's it. Because th- people don't realize that you're not bringing with architecture, with the programming language, just the language. You're bringing a community, a mindset. You're bringing a way to do things, a way to structure your organization, a way to communicate that, is impacting everything. Very often, you know, I remember I had this question, I think, uh, easily hundreds of times in the last five years. Uh, should I structure my distributed system in monorepo or polyrepo? And which one is the best approach? And, and my answer is always, 
it doesn't matter which one you you pick. Is is it what you want to express with the selection that matters? Because if you think about that, just with a simple, if you want to code technical decision like monorepo polyrepo, where you store your code, you are defining and shaping the way how your teams are communicating. If you are a polyrepo, the discoverability is very high. Sorry, in a polyrepo, the discoverability is very low and uh, uh, and you have, let's say, strong boundaries between the systems. So it, what you are enforcing is an API contract first approach where you are defining instead the very clear boundaries between the teams and uh, they know what is the, the, the API contract. Probably contract testing is a good way for looking into testing your, your solution. So as you can see, a simple decision of polyrepo makes that. If you do polyrepo, sorry, monorepo instead, in the monorepo, you have a high discoverability. Everything is, is there, but you have complex, higher complexity on the CI/CD. Uh, you need to, to do, let's say, uh, let's say you need to usually use trunk-based development as uh, in, in the branching strategy approach. You need to have, let's say, very disciplinated developers that are updating all the, the dependencies very quickly because otherwise you break uh, you break main uh, main branch so th- there are many things that are uh, let's say enforced or dotted line into a specific technical decision and unfortunately what I'm, I'm, I'm feeling is that currently people are underestimated uh, these um, uh, these things in the domain driven design community I think it started to uh, let's say embrace way more this social technical aspect of of architecture, but unfortunately, uh, often people are intimidated by by the concept of domain driven design, etc. They want to have something done and have be independent, and and those two aspects are absolutely doable. But you are basically shifting complexity, right? So one thing that I uh, it's it's a talk that is uh, oh, I think three years that I have in my head that they never delivered uh, is around modularity, and I have this strong belief uh, that I've seen over and over and over again that you need to understand. So modularity is a key architectural characteristics nowadays for allowing companies to have the agility required for building solutions, and that's why also many are looking into microservices um, or even driven architecture or serverless etc. The problem is. Very often, people are treating modularity exactly in the same way, despite the tool, despite the architecture. And they just said, okay, so I need to express this thing. Let me write some code. But the reality is you express modularity differently. And the one thing I, I believe didn't click very much with people is, for instance, if with serverless, the modularity is expressed at the infrastructure level. So what you are used to do at the code level for, I don't know, uh, retries or handling uh, in-memory store or stuff like that, now is handled with the service. And what is uh, enabling you is to have a a variety of choices in uh, the way how you are describing what you're expressing. But people are looking only on the code side. They're looking, I'm a developer. I need to do this this coding. I'm paid for writing code, beautiful code that everyone can understand or not. It doesn't matter. Uh, But uh, that's what I'm paid for. I think the role is changing for architects, for developers, et cetera. You need to think more holistically of some decisions are internal to your team, and that's perfect. Some decisions... It's not impacting only the engineering team. It's going to impact the entire organization. And distributed system definitely is one of them. And I think we there is often a lack of consciousness of these that architecture is tightly coupled with organization structure and, and the culture. 
and and uh, uh, this lack of consciousness makes people thinking distributed system don't work when something fail or is too complex and so on because they they don't holistically look at the three dimension I, I, as I used to say them. And they express modularity in the same way that we're doing with the monolith, but now with the distributed system that you cannot do that. It's like uh, counterintuitive. So I think this is the main challenge. And But I I can tell you that in the last three years since when I'm in, in AWS, vast majority of the engagement that I had are companies that are doing uh, uh, distributed system in some shape or, so, or uh, some kind of shape or form. But the reality is, it's popular, but if after 15, 20 years, because it's been a while that is out there, uh, almost 20 years, is we didn't find a solution that fits them all, then probably we need to look, broaden up our perspective and start to look at the context. And that's, I think, the part that often we are missing because, you know, there is this, this idea of I create a team that is responsible for this tiny part of the system and is completely independent. So I do everything inside my world, but for the rest, who cares? It has to be consciousness of my world is important, but I need to understand also how I'm connected inside this world. Now, I'm not saying you need to understand the entire system because the whole point of uh, it is reducing the cognitive load. But my job is not only writing code, is understanding how my system works and doing improvement for my part and the part that I'm connected to. Yeah, that's that's great. And, you know, I have immediate thing in my mind. And I said this a couple of times to, to my, let's call this boldly students. It's not a problem of you or, or your problem or your team problem, because on the end of the day, it's not your team who are selling the product. It's yeah. the organization who are selling the product. And, um, you know, with microservices, we tend to think about uh, this positive stuff, like y- you mentioned this, uh, reducing the, the load, reducing the complexity of, of the elements, etc., etc. But, you know, universe is a very special place where universe doesn't like the emptiness. Mm. And uh, with uh, simplifying something, we have more complicated something else. We mentioned this a couple of times already. So the communication patterns, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And understanding that this right now is more strategic vision, how we approach to things. In the same way I approach to CICD, I've created a, ah, let's say, framework, uh, which is available under CICD.run, where I try to put all those elements where we design and discuss initially CICD and then reevaluate the CICD in the way that it is a strategic approach. Because very often I heard that well, it doesn't matter what kind of branching strategy I will select. Well, maybe for a very simple project, it doesn't matter. But where you start to grow, it may be even a blocker for the growth. So having the strategic understanding of the today and tomorrow and yeah. even day after is very important. Of course, you can we can say that, oh, but this is not the agile-ish approach. We think about now and then we will adapt and improve and uh, inspect, etc., etc. But it's not like this. When when I walk around my my home, I need to predict what will happen if I start to run through the highway. And the highway is far away from me right now, but I should be aware of this, right? So, so this um, 
having this awareness is very important. And do you think that the role of architect is changing into this direction to give not only the you know the technical solution? Okay, I'm talking more about the solution architect right now than enterprise architect because this mm. is a different level. Yeah. But still, solution architect needs to have some capabilities which are in the enterprise architects. Yeah, so I think the role of architects in general, despite uh, technical solution or enterprise, is changing. In the modern architecture, I, I, I used to call it, I would say that uh, the role of architecture team that usually is uh, a team that is way smaller than the development team has to change in a way that it becomes an enablement team more than uh, a a gatekeeping team. And what I mean for that, if you think about team topologies, that is one of the fantastic bestseller and books that, uh, uh, that came out a few years ago, the role of an architect nowadays should be uh, a facilitator, should, uh, uh, let's say, enable the, the developers to take many decisions, not everything, but they should. the architect should provide guardrails, surface common patterns, became, uh, despite being a small team, became a sort of, uh, if you want, fun of the, the work of the development, uh, the development team are doing, and with the experience that the architect has, provide the guidance needed for avoiding common mistakes, like... For instance, if you know that the business uh, has to have some some regulation requirement that require to be multi-region or multi-cloud or stuff like that, you need to uh, vet the the architecture proposed by the developers and and challenge them on okay, but did you think about this? How we we do? I don't know how we can be compliant with the um, disaster recovery strategy that we have. How can be compliant with SLA? But also provide them this luck to understand uh, what they are doing and and uh, have skin on the game. And usually, when I was uh, VP of architecture in my previous company, uh, and I was running a team of ten architects, and we had like we were ten over five hundred other people between engineers and etc. So we we had also to understand where our effort should be valuable or where we can add more value. So we started to understand what was the critical path, where we can really, where, where we need to have an impact and then discard, but say certain parts and leave to the developers to take the best effort, best decision. And when we had time, if it we, if we was on fire, start to look into that. Because the reality is distributed system allows you to do that first. But secondly, uh, one thing that my CTO told me, because I was reporting directly to him back in the days, is everything is always on fire. So you just need to pick which fire you need to extinguish. And I truly believe that is uh, a great learning that I had during uh, my period in, in that role. Uh, and therefore, yes, it's true, there are certain things that could be done better. But you know, if there are like 10 users using that feature... And I have a million of users using another one that is on fire, but probably I will try to provide, let's say, immediate benefit to that. But that means you need to also help the, the team to understand the value of what they're doing and uh, and the context of how the things are, are used. So I believe that the role of architect, what I was telling to my team, is, is changing the way that 30% of your time should be technical, 70% of your time should almost be becoming a technical psychologist where you, you drag the, the uh, business requirements, 
the architectural characteristics and the, the SLA and all the other guardrails that are coming from the uh, platform team, security team, and so on. And you just surface that to the team that should uh, uh, you should guide towards the right direction. Because if they are capable, if you, if you teach them to fish, then they will be self-sufficient and probably next time they will do uh, the, the right decision and exactly what an architect would do. But if you just provide them the fish, they will eat today, but tomorrow they will ask for another fish. And that's not what, what the mindset you need. And it's obvious that there are certain teams and maybe they are more junior and they're more experienced. And, and it's, it's a very delicate balance. But the role of architect for me is now becoming uh, this, uh, uh, let's say, person that has to understand holistically how the things are, are working and, and, and uh, moving in, in, uh, around him. That is not just the technology part, it's the, the, the communication between teams, the dragging the right product people into the discussions when it, time, when it is the right time, facilitating through mechanisms like even storming and other things, uh, the communication across the organization, uh, mapping the, exp- the expectation from stakeholders into uh, the architecture. Also, challenging the team to create evolutionary architecture and modularize at the right level uh, because sometimes developers tend to go too far uh, and therefore uh, you need to really to bring them back and ask them, okay, but what we are gaining here? If you know that this thing is not going to change for the next five years, yeah, you can modularize wherever you want, but is it the right approach? Because if it takes like 10 times more, but maybe you can module, you can have, let's say, something that works today that is good enough and then you start to modularize for the next 10 years because otherwise you know you, you don't have much more to do so i think it's becoming uh, the experience that developed the architects has has to be let's say a super uh, power that has to be shared with all the other all the other uh, people and it's essential that that we do that uh, in a way that is uh, look at as facilitation and not imposition uh, and therefore it's very challenging, I would say, the role of architect nowadays. Uh, I believe that it's still a huge part in in every organization, but I think we need also uh, to to shift our mindset. So it's not only technical role. Yes, uh, I agree completely. And um, you know, we had this uh, like a I shaped people, then T shaped people, X shaped people, and right now architects look like uh, octopus shaped people, right? Exactly. So, uh, psychology uh, involved, right? So this leads me to the main topic for you last in last time, right? So micro micro frontends. You wrote a book about that, and it's a really great one. I really recommend everyone to to read it. Next. After or before the team topologies you mentioned already, but different story, let's say, for, for those two books. Totally. We are in the place on the road, which is very interesting because when we started with microservices or, or let's say decoupling the application, firstly, what we've done was to split front end from uh, back end. And then, at least I, how I see it, we left front end as it was. And we focused the whole powers on backend. We had a lot of issues like with databases, what we should do with databases in in this microservices world, how we should communicate, etc., etc., etc. But then we realized, we as an industry, that we have like an orphan here, which is front-end. If you could give us some kind of short explanation what those micro front-ends are about. Mm. So when uh, when I started, 
2015. And uh, I was tasked by the CTO on um, defining an architecture that allowed us to scale in people and in, in devices. So modularization was like the key uh, theme and topic over there. But the reality is I cannot think about uh, an architecture that is only technical. I need to make the architecture fitting, uh, let's say, my organization. Because otherwise, you can have the most amazing and perfect architecture in the world, but in your context, it's not going to work. And, and, and that's, that's the key. Therefore, I had to figure out how to minimize the, uh, let's say, the communication across teams. That doesn't mean eliminate, but minimize. Uh, and therefore, minimize the external dependency and so on. And one thing that I said, okay, what is an architecture that allows me to do that? Microservices back in the days. So I took like their starting from their principles, the autonomy, and so on, and and how I take this principle and decline into the, the the code base for a microservice, and then I started to mirror it into into the front end world. But at the same, more or less at the same time, a few years later, Zach Degani, I hope that I pronounced correctly, uh, started the the movement around data mesh. So now in my head, when that happened, and I started to read about that. Another fantastic book, by the way. And you start to look into creating this sort of cells in the organization where we want to create cross-functional teams, right? So Agile taught us that uh, cross-functional teams are more uh, working better, uh, they're independent, blah, blah, blah. But you need to create an architecture that enables this cross-functional team to be independent. And therefore, if you have microservices and you have microfrontends and you have a data mesh, now you have a team that can handle from what is front-facing for the user to the data that are querying inside the organization for uh, retrieving the information. And suddenly the whole pipe is handled by a single team that became a, sub, a, a sort of small startup. And one of the things that every enterprise is invying to the, to the startups is they can drift very quickly, they can move very quickly because they, they have way less uh, friction uh, of uh, coordination and bureaucracy, etc. So that for me, that was the thing that clicked in my head when I started looking into the, this world. So with Microfrontends, what we're trying to do is creating a bounded context like we have for microservices, but apply to the front. And very often people develop front-end developers that are approaching Microfrontends, they are thinking, oh, it's just remote, so components that are remotely loaded at runtime. That's not that. That's there is a strong reason because it's not because a component provides encapsulate a lot of functionality, but delegate the the the, uh, the usage of the component to the container. So they, do, they they are leaking completely the domain into the container of the component. A microfrontend doesn't. It's like, for instance, when we have like uh, the concept of having two microservices calling the same table in, in a database. Now I need to change the database, I need to change it to places. It's exactly the same thing with components and the microfrontends. The main difference is try to be independent, but for being independent, they need to be aware of what they're doing. And therefore, the domain has to be inside the microfrontend and not delegated to the container. Because otherwise, you start to have different teams working and you're basically going towards the big ball of mud or uh, distributed monolith that no one wants to, to deal with. And they had customers that had done through that journey and they revert back where I was suggesting. So seeing that, being there, so th that that is something I, I've seen. I think, um, you know, microphone tense at the beginning, everyone was extremely skeptical. There was like just a pool of people, very tiny, that were looking into that. With years, and I think 2019 was the pivotal year, people started to realize that was a, a real thing. They didn't know how to implement that. 
but they started to look into, okay, so probably this is a thing. And recently this year, I started to see also big names in the JavaScript community that started to say, oh, but probably this, this feature could fit my frontends. And everyone started to talk about island architecture, composable architecture, and stuff like that. At the end, are all distributed systems. I'm, I'm not too precious about the term micro frontends. For me, it's a distributed system and period. It was coined back in the days in 2016 by ThoughtWorks. And uh, uh, you want to call composable architecture for Mac, uh, or you want to call that, uh, um, I don't know, there was another guy that called, there was another name around around the smart component, if I remember well, something mm-hmm. like that. I don't care how you want to call them. I call them micro front-end, but uh, that that's, doesn't matter. They are em- embodies or island architecture. Uh, for instance, when I was talking with uh, one of the creators that coined the name of island architecture, I said, okay, let, let's stop for, for a second the implementation details that I don't care at this stage. Let's talk about what are the principles. They need to be independent. They, they need to be aware of what they did. They shouldn't leak the domain. I'm sorry, but we are in front of exactly the same thing with a different name. If you want to call it island architecture, call it whatever. I don't care. But the thing is, I care about the principle that I'm trying to communicate. Often, uh, people stops on the implementation part. I move forward. I want to understand what we are trying to achieve here. Because if you, are, you have clarity of what you're trying to achieve in architecture, then you apply the right tool for the job. And you understand where the trade-off that you can and the compromise that you need to make because every surprise, surprise, every single design decision has compromises and trade-offs. There isn't the perfect decision. When I hear developers saying, oh, this is the perfect decision, it doesn't exist. And, and therefore, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a strong in belief that you are gaining something and you are, uh, uh, let's say, losing something. And what I remember, one thing that I, I, have, I, I have to steal uh, from Neil Ford, uh, that is a famous architect, uh, uh, that I, 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 it's one of my, uh, let's say, virtual mentor, as I call him, he, he inspired me is you just need to find the less worse design solution that needs uh, inside your organization because there isn't the perfect one. And that for me is fantastic. Like it provides immediately clicked in my head and just, uh, let's say, stole that because uh, it's just such a great mind, that guy. But that, that for me usually is uh, the way how I approach microphone tents. That can be, Slice in different ways. Like if you think about microservice, one of the uh, questions that you have when you start is how big is a microservice? And we started, the community started to say, oh, they should have less than 100 lines of code or should have uh, uh, this thing. The size doesn't matter. The, the thing that matters is how you are structuring for enabling your team to achieve a distributed system. Because in a team, in a company of four teams, the way how you structure your microservices is probably more coarse grain. And the way how you are in, in a company like I don't know, Netflix or PayPal, et cetera, is completely different because they are using tens or if not hundreds of teams to build the same product. So therefore, you cannot say the same way that Netflix is doing, I will do a, a, a OTT platform or a streaming platform with 10 teams because it would be a suicide. We spend like vast majority of your time on uh, structuring your code and uh, having a team that now is in charge of 10 different microservices. That's not going to work. You need to be mindful in the way how you are slicing your thing and be conscious of your context. That often instead is discarded because we take as uh, granted that if that company have done that, but my company 10 times smaller, it should work also for us. I always said that if you want to... um implement a Spotify model in your company, the, there is a best and very short way to do that. 
just be hired by Spotify yeah. and, and work for them. You know, something what works for one person, one company will not work for the second. That, that's, Absolutely. that's, uh, that is, well, obvious for us, but not that obvious um, for, for many people. What is uh, not only sad, but sometimes scary even. I think it's a bit of uh, lack of experience in the trenches. I think uh, we have a uh, few years on in our uh, CV of, of experience <laughs> that probably we were there at some point and now we mature and uh, we have seen a few projects, why they failed, why they didn't fail uh, and they succeeded. So I, I believe that that matters. But obviously it's, you know, then it's, we go to the psychology part, right? So it's not yes. just I can tell to a person oh, if you do this, it's not going to work. Sometimes they need to, to, to crash and understand why yes. it didn't work. And then you need to support them instead of saying, oh, I told you so. You should support them to, uh, to create a mental model that walk them backwards from the failure that for me is a learning and not a failure. And, uh, and then uh, add it in their, in their Swiss army knife that is called skills. Because the more they, they understand and the reason about uh, something that happened, positive or negative, the more they learn. And unfortunately, when I was 20 years old, obviously, I didn't have that wisdom. Today that I'm 40 is different. So... Yeah, that's that's the learning train, the learning part. So coming back on the end to the micro frontends for a second, we already said that you know universe doesn't like emptiness, right? And when we uh, simplify some approaches to, uh, or some elements in the approach, we create some complications. Let's say somewhere else. You mentioned this that uh, the front end and the back end, in the landscape of understanding how they are positioned, are very similar. So this creates also the the communication problem between uh, not only between those elements of front end but also with the back end. So how to overcome this in in like a <laughs> easy way? You're thinking about technical communication or uh, uh, let's say organizational communication? Both really. Okay. Uh, let's start with organizational because this is uh, this is where it starts. Yeah. Uh, so. If you do this, so first of all, I uh, when I I work on few products uh, that I had to slice down in bounded context, what I was doing is start to be more coarse grain, and adjust later on if needed to be more co- more fine grain. What I mean with that is way easier to split up a larger domain than the other way around. When you have two teams working in a completely different way because they're independent in uh, two domains that then suddenly you realize, oh, probably this should be really one, then the trouble starts. And, uh, and it's not an easy one to solve because it will impact directly your capability to deliver. Uh, so organization-wise, I was a big fan of uh, creating situation where developers could continue the discussion. So in my previous company, we started to have like guilds. So we have like every month, the front-end guild, uh, where all the front-end developers were sharing what they have learned and uh, case studies and the solution that they brought to the table, etc. Same for the backend. Uh, we had uh, the town hall, where we, in front of uh, all the people in front-end, back-end developers inside uh, the specific dev center, People were describing what they have achieved, etc. Then we have uh, the architecture team was doing uh, his own uh, "Ask Me Anything" session or office hours, where people were coming, were asking why certain things were happening, if we take into account certain things, and so on. 
Uh, and then the security team did, did something similar. They started to, to spread the, what they call the security champions. So we started to create a lot of mechanisms for mitigating these uh, isolation that was also highlighted by the developers, by the way. They said, ah, yeah, before in the monolith, we, we were forced to communicate. Some people like that, some others don't. Now with my microservice or distributed system, we are isolated. So we started to surface these things. Uh, and that for me was um, quite key. That was uh, an aspect that I believe helped a lot to people and create these virtual committees or virtual teams that started to share things. That for me was, was a clear winner uh, on when we did, did that. On the technical side, uh, the communication between front end from microservice and micro front end is pretty easy, it's well known. So you use like GraphQL, you use REST, you use WebSocket, it depends what, what you need to express. That that for me is, you know, very, very often people are thinking, oh, but it's complex. That's not. That's the, the, the thing that you do every day, but in a smaller, um, let's say, vertical of your company, of your, of your system. That's it. What is more interesting, though, is the communication across, let's say, same layer of, of the architecture, so front-end and back-end. So if you have multiple micro-front-ends communicating together, very often people thought, let's start with what today is the common way to do that in, in, uh, in front-end. Let's share a state. Uh, so we take the same library, Redux uh, or whatever, and we start to share the state across the entire organization. Suddenly they realize that they have this, ex let's say they have to extract these important things of the domain, that is the, the model, into the container, and they didn't have the benefit of microfrontends, so they blame microfrontends, where the reality is you need to find a pattern that is uh, that allows you to be decoupled. And the pattern that allows you to be decoupled is the publish-subscribe pattern. They basically preach the idea of, I publish an event. Who is interested, it will uh, react. If no one is interested, no one is break, and the, the company, so the code won't break. And if there is a new part of the system that is interested, they just need to plug in the same uh, system of notification and react to that. That is... The same way that how you structure even driven architectures on the back end, but very often you know having this possibility to to, to switch between between uh, layers is not always uh, easy, and, uh, and you need a lot of experience, and and uh, therefore you need to bring them back. So people started to let's say complain at the beginning and said, oh, okay, but events, but we're not using events normally on on uh, on front end. True, but the problem is if you are using uh, something else, you are creating coupling. That is exactly what you don't want to have. So you are creating distributed system for reducing the coupling and external dependencies, and you are creating one. Uh, and therefore, it's the similar to microservices, right? Because then how do I communicate across bounded context? That's the first thing an architect should look at. And then the communication can be through events, could be through sockets, could be, it could be through HTTP requests, gRPC, it doesn't matter. You need to define a way to say, inside your boundaries, do your wherever. Outside your boundaries, this is the standard. The famous guardrails that I was, I was uh, defining before. And, and when you have that, it's as simple as that. So you don't have to do anything anything more. And, and just to give an idea, I remember uh, it was uh, three years ago, 
I, there, I was invited in a conference organized by uh, a virtual conference organized uh, uh, by a company in India where they asked several people doing microphone tents and uh, one talk was on communication microphone tents by PayPal. The, basically, they preached what I have written in my book. And I was so pleased because, you know, having a company like PayPal that are, uh, let's say, advocating for similar things mm-hmm. uh, made me, uh, let's say, extremely proud of the work that I've done, but also uh, the fact that the, we are going to the right direction. And therefore, if it works for someone on a PayPal, it should work for everyone. PayPal is uh, good enough to, to, to set a kind of standard, right? And, you know, this is, for many people, I think, this should be a click moment or aha moment. There is no hidden magic behind this. It's the very similar scenario, very similar solution like we already use for microservices, right? So the, we just move it to different layer. That's all. We need to finish, unfortunately, because uh, I already took uh, much more time than I asked for. Thank you very much, Luca, for uh, for Welcome. joining me today. And to all of you who are not following Luca right now, first of all, shame on you. Second, go to socials, follow Luca to, to find really, really great materials about uh, not only micro frontends, but many, many things related to, well, I will say it, to IT world today. Because yeah. this is uh, very, very important. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening to this episode. Luca Mezzalina was our guest today. Thank you very much for joining me. Have a nice day and see you next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of DevOps and Agile Way podcast with your host, Pave Pivac. Subscribe, comment, and do not forget to check our next episodes. Stay tuned. Stay safe. Stay curious.